All right, open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to... Um, we're going to be in this, this whole chapter this morning. It's on page two in the Welcome Table Bibles. Um, and, and, and this passage, okay, this is the passage. This is the passage that, that helps us begin to understand the world that we live in and why we live the way we do in this world, right? Up until this point, I don't know about you, but, but for the past couple weeks as we've gone through chapter one and chapter two, I can only wrap my mind around what that world looked like to a, a certain degree, and then I'm lost, right? I can't, I can't imagine it completely because I've never experienced the perfection that was there, right? But Genesis 3, what this describes, we can see this with our own eyes, can we not? We know this through experience, this marred and, and broken world in which we live. Genesis 3 tells us a tragic story, but we need to understand it's not a hopeless story. It's a tragic story, but it's not a hopeless story. And for that reason, we need to understand what's happening here. We need to listen to God's word and and to see and pay attention because if we do, the Lord will not allow us to leave here this morning without hope. And boy, do we need hope. Amen? So let me pray and ask him to, to do exactly that. Lord, we thank you that your word is is uh, unchanging. We thank you that Jesus Christ himself is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we thank you that right here in the midst of the darkest moment that light shines in the promise of redemption through Christ. We pray that you would help open our eyes both to uh, the, the, uh, the depth of our sin and the depth of grace that far exceeds it. In Jesus Christ, we pray this in his name, amen. Sometimes I struggle to be patient with my kids. Nobody can relate to that one, I think. Sometimes I I struggle with being selfish in my marriage. Sometimes I'm prideful. Sometimes I'm fearful about my circumstances or the unknown or what people think about me. Sometimes I'm apathetic, sometimes I'm angry, sometimes I'm without compassion, and I have a laundry list of all of these ways that the sin in my heart shows itself to you and to me. Now I'm telling you these things up front because I'm about to make a statement that has the potential to be offensive, and I'd rather you sit and wait for the whole end before you walk out. Okay. I want you to understand two things before I say this. First, I say this not as a pastor who's arrived. Yes, I'm up on a, on a platform, but it's just simply so you can see and hear me. I would gladly be sitting next to you and hearing this because I need to. I'm not a pastor who's arrived in my spiritual journey. I'm a sinner that's saved by grace who's being sanctified along the way. Secondly, I can make this statement with confidence because it's not my personal opinion. It's a biblical reality. All right. Are you ready for it? Sin makes you a fool because sin is foolishness. Sin makes you a fool because sin is foolishness. It's folly. 
This is an argument that the whole of Scripture makes. The entire book of Proverbs is concerned with showing that true wisdom comes from trusting and obeying the Lord, while true foolishness comes from trusting yourself and rejecting God. In other words, sin is is foolishness, right? It, It makes you a fool because it causes you to reject the wisdom of God and to rebel against Him. Sin makes you a fool because sin is foolishness. It's folly. In Genesis 3, we're going to see the beginning of foolishness when temptation and sin enter the Garden of Eden through the hearts of Adam and Eve. Yeah, it comes through a serpent, but it comes through the hearts of Adam and Eve. And as we watch this drama unfold, we'll be tempted to criticize them for their foolish behavior, right? It's easy for us to be Sunday morning quarterbacks in this. But we'll we'll be tempted to criticize them for their foolish behavior, but, but... if we pay attention, if we listen with humility, we'll, we'll see that their foolishness is our foolishness and their sin is our sin. And if we listen with wisdom or to the wisdom that this passage has to offer, that it's communicating to us, we won't leave here today without hope. We don't have to walk out here and go, man, I'm a sinner. That's not the message that we leave if we're in Christ. We do need to understand what sin does to us, though. And so here's the main point right here, okay? Because sin has made us all fools, we all need the transforming wisdom of God's grace. Because sin has made us all fools, we all need the transforming wisdom of God's grace. Genesis 3 is this, it's a historical event. It really took place. But, it, but it's being told here in this dramatic fashion, like, like a play of sorts, okay? So if we think of chapters 1 and 2 as sort of this first act of the play, chapter 3 is the second act with a tragic plot twist. And so just for kicks and giggles, we'll give this, uh, th- this second act a, a title this morning. We'll call it The Folly of Sin and the Wisdom of Grace. And we'll see it play out in four scenes, okay? The first scene is The Temptation and the Fall, Scene two is an opportunity for repentance. Scene three is a pronouncement of judgment. And scene four is a glimpse of grace. So scene one, temptation in the fall. And actually before we get into this scene, we need to back up to chapter two and verse 25 because it's a transition statement that connects these two acts, act one and act two together, right? The opening scene says this, verse 25 of chapter two, both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. And so curtain one, or, or, or the curtain closes on act one with this, this picture of innocence, right? We, we talked about last week. Everything is good. They're all in harm, harmonious relationships. Everything is good. They were naked. They felt no shame. Totally innocent. They saw each other with pure eyes. Now, curtain closes on act one. A picture sort of like, I don't know, I picture like the, the fog mist rolling in right? The ominous music start to play, and the, the lights are dim, and the curtain opens. And this is what we get in the beginning of Act 2. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord had, God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No. No. 
you will not die. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Now a new character is introduced here. The serpent. And there's a couple things that we need to understand and we need to, to make note here about this serpent. First, there's nothing from the immediate context, from the text that we have in front of us, that tells us that the serpent is anything other than a serpent. Okay? A, a, a wild animal that the Lord God had made. Now it's weird but it's not impossible for an animal to talk in the Bible. Do you remember Balaam's donkey? Numbers chapter 20, somewhere in there. But because we have the whole of Scripture to look at and available to us, we can understand a little bit more about this serpent. In the book of Revelation, in both in chapter 12 and chapter 20, Satan is called that ancient serpent. Okay? The biblical theology, the, 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 the picture of the serpent gets developed throughout Scripture and we realize we're dealing with more than just an animal here, right? And so that's one conclusion that, that we can draw here. We're, we're dealing with more than just a serpent because we're also dealing with Satan who, who uh, specializes in lies and deceit. But we also need to understand that Satan is a created being, which means he's not God's equal. God does not have a nemesis with equal and opposite power. Satan is created. He's not the creator. That's wisdom that we need to remember. Satan, the serpent, is evil incarnate. And his goal is to undermine God's good authority and to corrupt God's good creation, especially the creation made in God's own image, which is mankind, right? And that's why he's described in verse 1 as the most cunning of all the wild animals. Now, in the Hebrew here, it's a neutral word. It just says he's the wisest of all the animals. Isn't that interesting? He's the wisest of all the animals, but it's translated as most cunning uh, or crafty, maybe in your uh, English translation, to help us get the sense that's being conveyed here. The, the Hebrew term is, is, is meant to perk up our ears and, and draw the reader into the irony that's about to take place here. It's a clue that points to the foolishness that's just about to happen. With crafty and, and deceitful words, the serpent would ask one question and he would make two statements that would entice the woman to question the very wisdom of God himself. The serpent started by taking God's words and twisting them. Did God really say? Did, did God really say you can't eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? What did God really say? You remember? Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So Eve told the serpent this in verses 2 and 3, and, and he replied by directly contradicting the words of God. First he twists them, now he just flat out contradicts them. No, no, that's wrong. You won't die. 
God is lying to you. That's what he's saying. You won't die. And then he lied to her in verse 5, and he deceived her into thinking that God was withholding something from them. Not just that God was lying, misinforming, but that he was actually hiding something, keeping it from them. What was that thing? It was wisdom. Eat that fruit, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, we need to understand that temptation makes bad things look good and good things look bad. Temptation makes foolish things look wise and wise things look, look foolish. Temptation is always rooted in questioning God's wisdom and weakening our trust in him, enticing us to believe that he's withholding something good from us. What are the things that entice you to think about God this way? Psalm 84, 11 and 12 says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord grants favor and honor. He does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. Happy is the person who trusts in you, Lord of armies. Temptation makes you miserable because it calls you to question God's wisdom, his judgment, and makes you want to accuse him of withholding something good. Now, the irony here is that Adam and Eve were already like God, right? Because they were created in his image according to his likeness. Chapter 1 tells us that. And up till this point, the narrative has been that, that God is the one who looks at something, sees it as good. God is the one that says, this is good, right? What happens, though, here in verse 6? Suddenly, the woman takes God's place. She saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. Remember that phrase from chapter 2 last week? said to hold on to that in your mind. God made every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and, uh, of good and evil. That's what it says in chapter 2. But one more thing is added here in verse 6 of chapter 3. The woman saw that the tree was desirable for obtaining what? Wisdom. Now, the word desirable here is the same Hebrew word that Moses later uses in the Ten Commandments to talk about coveting. She coveted what she thought God was withholding from her. And so she foolishly reached out her hand and she took what was not hers to take and she ate it. And at the end of verse 6, suddenly we realize the man's been there the whole time. What's up, Adam? Where have you been? But he's been silent. And instead of stopping her, instead of stopping the serpent, he foolishly joined in and he ate the fruit that she gave them. In chapter 2, God delegated some of the authority to the man. And with that authority, he, was, he was, uh, was to care for the garden and for his wife, and together they were to fill the earth and to subdue it and to rule the fish of the, the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawled on the earth. But neither one of them ruled over this serpent. Instead, they both listened to his lies and they ignored God's truth. And in their quest to gain wisdom, they became fools. Their eyes were opened and they realized they became wise to the fact that they were naked. And for the first time, they felt shame. One commentary put it this way. 
Their new knowledge was that of their own nakedness. Their knowledge of good and evil, which was to make them like God, resulted in the knowledge that they were no longer even like each other. They were ashamed of their nakedness, and they sewed leaves together to hide their differences from one another. Not only did they try to hide from each other in their shame, but they also tried to hide from God. And that brings us to the second scene, an opportunity for repentance. Look at verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave me to be with me She gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. For the first time, the man and the woman trembled at the sound of the Lord. Where where there was once peace and love and security, there was now fear. This is the same fear that we see with the Israelites, the same fear that they knew when they heard the sound of the Lord, the the thunder on top of uh, of Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. When the people heard the thunder, they they trembled and they, they stood at a distance. They hid because they were afraid that they would die. Just like Adam and Eve, their sin opened their eyes to the reality of God's holiness and it separated them from him. We can't, we don't want to go. Moses, you go. It's interesting here in this scene that once Adam and Eve's eyes are opened, it almost seems like God's eyes are shut, doesn't it? Like they now know something that he doesn't. Did God know what was going on here? Yeah. The rest of scripture makes it pretty clear that there's nothing that he doesn't know. Psalm 147.5 says, Our Lord is great, vast in power. His understanding is infinite. God knows what's happening. So was he playing dumb? No. Because in his infinite wisdom and grace, God is exposing here with gentleness and kindness. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance, Paul says, right? He's exposing what the man and the woman were trying to hide. And he was doing it in a way that offered them an opportunity to confess what he already knew and to seek his forgiveness for what they had done. But, but God didn't go to the woman first like the serpent did. He called out to the man because he had created the man first and he had given the man the command. He had given him the authority to govern and guard the garden and to lead his wife lovingly in obedience to God. But the man failed to do this. He failed to guard the garden by letting the wild serpent in. And he failed to lead his wife by remaining silent while she listened to the serpent and took the fruit. God didn't hold the man exclusively responsible for what he and the woman had done. We need to understand that. But he did hold him primarily responsible. And so he came and he called to the man first to give an account of their actions. But what did the man do? Instead of taking responsibility for his actions... The man initiated the blame game. He blamed God for giving him the woman, and he blamed the woman for giving him the fruit. 
Nice work, Adam. It's an ironic twist from the song that he sang about the woman at the end of chapter 2, is it not? He went from gushing over her as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh to distancing himself from her as a thorn in his side. That woman that you gave me, it's your fault and it's her fault. And then God asked the woman what she had done. She followed suit. Instead of taking responsibility for her actions, she blamed the serpent for deceiving her. In both cases, there was a confession of sorts, right? Both, one, both, both times they say, I ate it. Like, they're not denying that. But neither of them confessed that they had eaten the fruit because that's what they wanted. Instead, they made it seem like they had to eat it because someone else made them do it. Now, it's at this point that it's tempting for us to get angry at Adam and Eve and to think that if they would have just listened to God in the first place, if they would have kicked the serpent out of the garden as soon as he came in and opened his mouth, or if they just would have confessed and sought forgiveness when they had the chance, the world wouldn't be the way it is now and we wouldn't be as miserable as we are right now, right? We wouldn't struggle the way we do. But the moment that we start to think that way, we're immediately confronted with the reality that we're foolishly doing the exact same thing that they did and we're blaming someone else for our sin. That makes it hard to deny the reality that if we were in their place, we wouldn't have done any better. We would have done the same thing. Anytime we blame another person, anytime we blame Satan for our sin, we prove that we're no different than our first parents. Now, we need to readily acknowledge that sin does happen to us, right? It's a product of the fall. When others say and do harmful things against us, that's sin that happens on the outside of us and actually does damage to us, emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually. And that often makes it more difficult for us to respond in the right way. But nowhere in Scripture does it give us permission to blame others for the sin that happens in us. In fact, Scripture makes it clear that we have only our own corrupted hearts to blame for that. Jesus himself says that the defilement comes from within, right? James tells us, why, why do you brawl? Why do you argue and fight? Isn't it not because of the desires of your heart? Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked, diseased. Who can understand it? Who has wisdom, right? Corruption inside us must be dealt with, either by justice or by grace. And that leads us to the next scene. And it's in this scene that it becomes clear that the drama that's unfolding here is is setting this stage. Like the play doesn't end in chapter 3. It actually is just act 2 of a whole lot of other acts that are coming. The drama that's unfolding here is setting the stage for a story that goes far beyond the man, the woman, and the serpent. Their story becomes humanity's story, carried on first through the rest of the Pentateuch and the Old Testament, through God's relationship with the people of Israel, and then on into the New Testament through God's relationship with all people. And we are currently living in this drama of redemption. Let's look at this 
third scene here, the pronouncement of judgment, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now the Lord spoke to the serpent first and he cursed him. The, the text does not say whether or not the serpent initially had legs or feet. The main point is not that he crawls on the ground. The main point is what he does while he's on the ground. And that is to eat dust all the days of his life, no matter where he went. Throughout scripture, eating and licking the dust is portrayed as this total humiliation and defeat of one's enemy, especially of God's enemies. At the end of Micah's prophecy, toward the end of the Old Testament, God promises that Israel's enemies will lick the dust like a snake, and they will come trembling out of their hiding places like reptiles slithering on the ground, trembling in the presence of the Lord and standing in awe of his people. At the end of Isaiah's prophecy, he speaks of God's promise to make a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem where the wolf and the lamb will feed together, where the lion will eat straw like cattle. But what does he say about the serpent? The serpent's food will be dust. Dust. The serpent, who was the most cunning of all wild animals, is now more cursed than any livestock or wild animal. And his curse is this ongoing reminder of total humiliation and defeat that awaits him. You will eat the dust. And God elaborates on this in verse 15. He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, this is what's commonly known as the first gospel because it's the first pronouncement of the good news, of the defeat of evil and the redemption of mankind. Obviously, it's not fully developed in detail, but it lays this foundation for the rest of Scripture to display God's multifaceted wisdom and to reveal how he will bring about this fulfillment of this promise. Genesis 3.15, you should highlight it, underline it, star it, mark it, memorize it, Get that into your head because that is the plot line for the rest of the story. It lays the foundation. For the rest of the drama of redemption. The rest of Genesis marks out this distinction between the offspring and the of the woman. We're going to see this begin next week when we look at chapter 4. This distinction between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent and the ongoing and growing hostility between the two. But we need to understand, it's not humans versus snakes. I don't, you might be like deathly afraid of snakes and you want to run them over with your mower every time you see them and all of that stuff, right? That's not because of Genesis 3.15. That's because you're wigged out about snakes, right? This hostility, it's not just between humans and snakes. It's humans who love and trust God finding hostility with humans who love and trust themselves and hate God. And even though this second group descends physically from the woman, they descend spiritually from the serpent. Uh, the, the serpent. And we're going to see these two genealogies diverge beginning in chapter 4. And throughout the rest of the Pentateuch and the rest of the Old Testament, we're continually presented with, with stories of this hostility that leave the reader wondering, who is the promised offspring of the woman? When will he crush the serpent's head once and for all? And what does it mean? 
for the serpent to strike his heel. What does that mean? We keep going. The answer gets, comes to us when we get to the New Testament as it opens up with the, the Gospels, the, the, the pronouncement of good news. Four of them from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tell this good news of the defeat of evil and the redemption of mankind through the promised offspring of the woman as the Son of God, Jesus, loved the Heavenly Father and he obeyed him perfectly. Instead of doubting God's word, Jesus relied on it and the power of the Holy Spirit to resist the cunning temptations that Satan brought to him in the wilderness. And after he spent a few years proclaiming the good news of the king, uh, the long-awaited kingdom of God, and he revealed that he is the long-awaited king, he didn't overthrow the Roman army with force. Instead, he overthrew a much greater enemy by being nailed to the cross as an innocent man. See, he was mocked, and he was made to look like a fool. But the serpent struck his heel when Christ breathed his last breath and died on the cross. But three days later, the power of God, the wisdom of God, was displayed when Christ rose from the dead, delivering a sin-crushing and death-crushing blow to the serpent's head once and for all, bringing true life, giving freedom and forgiveness to everyone who puts their trust in him. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it's the power of God to us who are being saved. By God's grace, through the gospel, our eyes are opened. And we see the foolishness, not of the cross, but of our sin. And we see the wisdom of God to restore what was broken in the garden all the way back here in Genesis 3. 1 John 3, 7 and 8. John says, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteousness, just as Christ is righteous. The one who continues in sin is of the devil. You're a seed of the serpent. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy, to crush the devil's works. And all that's been revealed in Christ was, was promised in the wisdom of God's words in Genesis 3. 15. But the promise of what was to come didn't remove the painful, immediate consequences of sin. Look at verse 16. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor, labor pains, all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. God spoke to the woman after the serpent, and he told her that childbearing would be intensely painful. Blessing, the, the, the blessing of being fruitful and multiplying would now be experienced through, through pain, through painful reminders of her sin. But with every labor pain echoes the promise of redemption, the promise to reverse the curse through her offspring. 
And he also told her that there would be strife between her and her husband. No longer would their marriage be be full of unity and self-giving love. Instead, it would be full of division and selfish pursuit of power and control. And then God spoke to the man and he said that, that because the man listened to his wife instead of listening to God's command, the ground would be cursed because of him. And instead of freely eating from any tree in the garden and from every seed-bearing plant on the land, the man would now eat from the ground outside of the garden only by means of painful labor. He'd have to toil and sweat to survive while the ground freely produced thorns and thistles as a result of the curse. Thorns, by the way, that would be fashioned into a crown and driven into the head of our Savior King as he hung on the cross with labored breath, soaked in blood and sweat, working, toiling to reverse the curse. In Genesis 2, God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Here in verse 19, God said the man would toil and labor until his last breath. And then he would return to the ground from which he came. And with those words came one of the most devastating consequences of sin. Death. Death. You know how we say death is a natural part of life? It's not. Not the original life. The man and the woman would experience the painful consequences of their sin their foolishness, their folly. But when God cursed the serpent, he revealed that he would not abandon the man or the woman even though they had turned away from him. And that leads us to the final scene, a glimpse of grace. Look at verse 20. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and, from, and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. The naming of Eve was a glimpse of God's grace. This is the second time Adam named her called her woman in chapter 2. Even though Adam and Eve would eventually die because of their sin, the human race would not be wiped out. This is grace. Because God promised that the offspring of the woman would come and crush the offspring of the serpent through painful childbirth. She would give life to the next generation and human life would continue on long past them in the midst of death, one generation leading to the next generation and the next and the next and the next until what? The serpent crusher is born from the line of Judah so that he could die and give eternal life to all who believe in him. The clothing from skins was a glimpse of God's grace. God covered their shame through the sacrifice of another. This is not only foreshadowed the sacrificial system and the tabernacle and the temple, but it also looked forward to the sacrificial death of Christ that would provide covering for the sin and the shame of all who trust in him. Romans tells us everyone who trusts in him will not be put to shame. 
Sending Adam and Eve away from the garden was a glimpse of God's grace. Yes, it was a consequence for their foolishness. Yes, it was a, 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 a consequence of their sin, but, but it was not a vindictive punishment of the Lord. I think sometimes we read it that way. It was an act of grace. He was keeping them from greater harm. You see, if they were to eat from the tree of life while they were in this sinful, rebellious state against God, they would live forever in separation from him, in torment, in toil, in pain. And they would remain unreconciled to God because of their sin. But God loved his world in this way. He gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not die, will not perish in eternal torment, but will have everlasting life. God didn't want them to remain in their sin, so he sent them away until redemption and restoration could take place through his son whom he sent into the world to bring people back into paradise with him forever. The cherubim guarding the entrance to the garden sanctuary became an enduring symbol of the separation between God and his people because of their sin and his holiness. Images of the cherubim were sewn into the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies uh, from uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was, was kept in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. God's presence dwelt on the mercy seat, which was the, the top of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and it was covered by two huge golden statues, can you guess what they were? Cherubim. It was called the mercy seat. It was the place where God met with the high priest and he would make atonement for the people's sins. It was the cherubim-laden curtain that was torn from top to bottom in the temple when Christ died on the cross, the tree of death, and restored access once again to God and to the tree of life. And now we are here, God's new covenant people, new creations in Christ, forgiven and reconciled by God, by his grace, through faith in Jesus. But our eyes are open to the reality that when we walk out that door, that is not paradise, right? And we're still faced with the, the reality of the, the, the struggle that remains against our own sin, the sin that, that, that lies in our hearts still. We're bombarded daily with the cunning schemes of our enemy that, that seek to tempt us to doubt God's word and to wonder if he's withholding something good from us. Listen, he's not, and he won't. And that's exactly why we daily need to remember the true story of the serpent crusher and preach the gospel of our risen Lord to ourselves and to one another as often as possible. Listen, 1 Corinthians if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then our faith is worthless. It's foolish. We're still dead in our sins. If we put our hope in Christ for this life only, then we should be pitied more than anyone. They would have a right to look on us as fools. But as it is, Christ has been raised, and we've been raised with him spiritually now in the, in the resurrection of Christ. But, and the day, the day is coming when we will be physically raised to spend eternity with him in the very real paradise that's waiting for us. And until then, he's called us to live no longer in the foolishness of our sin, but in the wisdom of his grace. 
So we resist the temptation to foolishly conform to the ways of this world by relying on the grace of God's word to daily conform us into Christ's image. Why? Because the scriptures make us wise for salvation, 2 Timothy 3.15. And they teach us to live sensibly in this present age, Titus 2.12. And because God's word is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise, Psalm 19.7. We resist the temptation to foolishly depend on ourselves and our own desires by relying on the grace of God's Holy Spirit who now dwells in us because his spirit is the spirit of wisdom and revelation, Ephesians 1.17, who helps us understand what has been freely given to us by God, 1 Corinthians 2, and he guides us into all truth, John 16.13. We resist the temptation to foolishly try to follow Jesus and fight our sin by ourselves by relying on the grace of God's church. people being remade in his image, through which he makes his multifaceted wisdom known to the rulers and authorities in the heavens, Ephesians 3.10, and grows us all up into the wisdom and stature of Christ, Ephesians 4.13. We resist the temptation to foolishly give our affections away to lesser things that only lead to death by relying on the grace of God's Son, Jesus Christ, to help us remain in his love and to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3 And he has become wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30 because sin has made us all fools, we all need the transforming wisdom of God's grace. And in his infinite wisdom, God has given us grace abundantly through his word, through his spirit, through his church, and through his son. So let's be people who rely on God's wisdom and resist sin's folly. God has not withheld anything good from us. He's proven that by giving us his son and everything along with him. Romans 8. So let's freely partake of all that God has given us as we wait for the return of the serpent crusher. There's promise yet to be fulfilled. And when he comes, he'll restore what mankind has broken and our eyes, our eyes will see the reality of the paradise that God had made in the first place and is restoring so that we can be forever in his presence together, unashamed. Amen? Lord, come. Let us be people who rely on your grace and your wisdom and who grow in those things as we wait for the fulfillment of your promise and tell others living in the foolishness of sin about the Savior, the serpent crusher, all for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.